Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour, a brand new weekly podcast hosted by me, Dan Wood, and Ravi Abbott. Hello, Hello. Ravi. How are you doing? Good, good. <laughs> now, uh, we're going to be here every week talking about all things retro gaming and technology. And you can get the podcast every week off iTunes, on SoundCloud, and from the website, theretrohour.com. Now, we thought we'd start this podcast up because we've been on YouTube for a couple of years now, haven't we, Ravi? Yeah, kind of doing Amiga stuff mainly, but also a few a few general big retro videos as well. But we thought we'd go back to roots and do a good old-fashioned old-school audio podcast. Oh, nothing beats radio. <laughs> now, what we're going to be doing every week is talking about stuff that's kind of retro gaming and retro technology related, but we, we've looked around. There is quite a lot of retro gaming podcasts. However, most of them have kind of got a bit of an American bias on them, I think. Yeah, and they, and they kind of tend to be Nintendo. Uh, in America, very Nintendo focused. All NES, isn't it? Yeah. So uh, we, we thought we'd do this podcast with a bit more of a European and, uh, in particular, you know, UK slant stuff that was big over here that necessarily wasn't all that big in America. Stuff like the Amiga and uh, the 8 bit home computers as well. Yeah, the kind of Ataris as well. Even though that was popular in America, there was a bit of a uh, European scene going on. But we thought we'd start with uh, a topic that I think everyone who's into retro gaming can relate to good old Sega. Yeah. Now, What's all this that's been going on about a Dreamcast 2? Oh, well, um, it's recently been Sega Mega Drive's 25th birthday, which is a, a separate story we can talk about in a minute. But um, the Dreamcast 2, now there's been recently pictures and renders of this uh, <laughs> Dreamcast machine that's going to be beautiful with HDMI out and play all of your machines. This is all completely fake. It's, it's made up by Dreamcast fans, but it's gathered so much momentum that... Dreamcast 2 was trending on Facebook really? this week. Yes. Oh, my word. So, so why is it suddenly the Dreamcast 2 making the news and why are people talking about this? I, I think it's it's to do with the anniversary of Sega, but I also think it it's like the consoles last year, SNES. Everybody was collecting yeah. SNES. Everyone was focused on that. I think they're kind of naturally moving on to the next console, which is the Dreamcast. It is a bit of a tragedy, the Dreamcast, though, because it's a great machine, but obviously it was kind of Sega's, you know, last breath in the console market, wasn't it? And It was, and it was very powerful as well. Great machine. I mean, we, we went to a retro gaming show the other week, and the amount of peripherals you can get for the Dreamcast, I got a fishing rod. A <laughs> fishing rod. Well, <laughs> I think they say there's been, um, I think, 17 independent games released for the Dreamcast uh, this year, 2015. That's crazy, isn't it? And... They're, this isn't homebrew. This is like independent mm-hmm. games, fully packaged, you know, with a development team, printed discs. It's, it's madness. When did it get... It was like 2001 it got discontinued? I think so, yeah. If you'd have said like yeah, 15 years later, people will still be making games for it. Good thing as well is Sega, they don't give a shit. They're like, you know... Well, that's, that's part of the reason people mm-hmm. are making games for it because there's people will actually buy these games and they're saying a lot of the time they'll make the game for the Dreamcast independent, get the publicity mm. and then make PC versions and, oh, and clever. It, will, okay. it will be kind of free publicity. You know? Yeah, that's interesting. See, in the Dreamcast, I mean, it, it was obviously Sega's last entry into the console market. They've not made another one since. We're obviously just a software publishing house now. Yeah, Team Sonic now, I think, mainly. But I mean, to be fair, a lot of the recent Sega games have been pretty horrific, though, especially yes. the Sonic entries. But uh, Dreamcast 2, it's never going to happen, is it? No, I don't think it is. <laughs> I, I, think, I think, if anything, you'd probably get a kind of fan-made project, but... Not professionally, to another mass scale. Or well, even anything. the amount of R&D and money, I mean, it costs millions. Well, interestingly, you're saying this, but um, the Sega Mega Drive, they've just reported that they're, they're actually selling Mega Drives, which is crazy, at Argos <laughs> in the UK, and they're reporting that they've had a 400% surge. And these consoles, they're like, you can plug the cart in, 
your old carts, but you can also have a hard drive on it. It's got HDMI out, and it's only £50. Pounds. Yeah, and they've got the cart slot, so your original games can play on it as well. Yeah. Now, what this is, I'm looking at a picture of it here. It's a really small, about the size of like a mobile phone, a little bit chunkier, though. Um, and it basically is, yeah. It's got a couple of wireless controllers as well. This is uh, kind of a, a new version of the Mega Drive, if you like. Yeah, it's strange. These new consoles kind of appearing, like the Retron, which is one that you can play you know, with real hardware, mm -hmm. all of your old carts on it. But it says a 400% increase. Does it actually give you... They could have sold, like, four of them, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's it. yeah. But I, I haven't actually played one of these. I did get the Atari Flashback. Yeah. You know that yeah. one? It's kind of got, like, a load of built-in games as well. well they've but... also done the... Um... Spectrum, haven't they? Uh, yeah, the, the, small the one. Vega uh, yeah. one recently. I think it was out because we're, we're from the East Midlands. I think it was actually made here in Nottingham, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. So which is uh, pretty crazy. It's weird this emerging market of uh, <laughs> new consoles. It's strange. I think someone should maybe build an N64 with HDMI. That would be very <laughs> successful. So you can see all the blurriness really sharp. Yeah. But actually, speaking of uh, Sega, I was I had something really weird the other day that apparently they still sell the Sega Master System in Brazil. What? You can still oh, buy still it's, it's, it's still a massive platform out there and they still make games for I'll it. I'll have to ask my girlfriend about that. She's Brazilian. Well, there you so go. I'll try to find out. I guess a new Master System games. There you are. Yeah. <laughs> now, obviously, you mentioned a moment ago that there is um, that Retron console. What's this about Coleco coming back into the console market? Yeah, I've, I've not really looked at it, but uh, Coleco Chameleon console mm -hmm. has come. I think it's emerged from a Kickstarter. I think you know more about this than me. Well, what I think this is, I mean, it was, it was a failed Kickstarter. It's um, basically, if you haven't seen the pictures of it, it's in the shell of an old Atari Jaguar. Okay. So they did a Kickstarter. Well, that's not a nice shell to start with. <laughs> well, <laughs> did you hear the story of the Atari Jaguar shell afterwards? It was um, after, like, Atari didn't care about it anymore and sold the rights off. It actually got made into a, a dental camera. Okay. So there are some, like, white... What, what, like, for above people's? Well, yeah, uh, yeah. they kind of have, like, a, the case of the Jaguar was white, and then they've got, like, an attachment with a camera on, like, on a, on a lead. So there's a good chance if you go to your dentist, like, in certain parts of the world... You might see an Atari Jaguar on the wall. Would you trust that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's all right. I'll go somewhere else. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, there is actually like a, a scene who, um, like on eBay, you can actually buy these camera shells. And there are people that mod their original Atari Jaguars and have them in this bright white case. Wow. So uh, yeah, but basically this new console, it's, um, it's an emulator okay. um, that's in an Atari Jaguar shell. However, it's not really got that. So it's, it's, not, it's not hardware. Uh, compatible or is it no is it's, it's like a... I, I think it plays various platforms okay. but it's um it hasn't been getting that I much good publicity so strangely that they said they were going to release seven games for it i'm looking forward to that <laughs> <laughs> let's see well i think it can play old stuff it is like an emulator basically yeah. at heart but it's um people have just been saying that it's you know it's essentially just an emulator in a box why wouldn't mm. you just like get a raspberry pi or i guess they've just kind of slapped the branding on yeah, well, yeah. And, it, and it was going for something like like 200 quid or something i think so uh you know, you could buy a Raspberry Pi for like what, like twenty five quid, and put Retro Pi on. You've got yeah, yeah, you know everything you ever wanted, really. Uh, but something who is coming back into the retro gaming market is the High Street Shop game. Yeah, well, game have actually put on their website for the first time. Duh, 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 they're listing old school games on there, so it's kind of uh, interesting. They're selling the retro consoles and stuff, but they're only listing old games and. I think these are ones that they're getting as trade-ins in their stores mm -hmm. and they're kind of looking at the value and noticing it. But if you look at GameStop in America, they're doing an absolutely massive project, which is a, a full pilot scheme for GameStop, where they've actually... I've seen photos of it. They've got 
rooms with 50 guys sitting there and they're all cleaning like Nazcarts. <laughs> and it's like... Get a, 30 years worth of crap off Yeah, them. it's kind of like a, a, a factory. <laughs> They've got this chain of, you know, uh, guys refurbishing carts. I don't know how it works out financially or anything. <laughs> but I mean, to be fair, you look, you look at the prices at retro stuff, especially Nintendo stuff, goes for on eBay. It goes for an absolute fortune yeah. now. So, you know, honestly, and you look at like the way that gaming's going now, modern gaming... A lot of it's digital delivery, isn't it? So and it, and it keeps getting more expensive every year. So I think you're right with digital delivery. They're not going to have anything to put in the shop. It's yeah. just going to be full of amiibos. <laughs> yeah, Nintendo games from 30 years ago. Yeah, yeah. but it's kind of cool. Though. I mean, it's. Uh, I remember game here in the UK. Though they're the main high street shop for buying video games. Yep. And uh, they used to have a the bought Game Station, didn't they? That was another one of their. Yeah, brands, and they which... had Electronics Boutique. Yeah, uh, well, Game Station ago. used to sell retro games, though, didn't it? Yeah, there was there was a little. I remember in the one in Nottingham, at least we had upstairs. Mm-hmm. There was a section that was just like you know PS One and entire floor, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah but their kind of retro, which is usually PS One, yeah. uh, Nintendo, kind of none of the other stuff that yeah, you they can't make money from. Basically, you weren't getting a Commodore sixty four in there or anything. No, there, no. But, uh... Whereas we've got an independent store in Nottingham called Playtime, and when in there they had a full spectrum they had everything you know all the old systems that's the thing you know if you want to buy like retro consoles it's generally you know online and the prices are massive and there is like you know a few little like independent shops that you'll find in a lot of places yeah. springing up now but i found shows are really good it's a good tip if you ever go to any kind of computer shows take a lot of money because <laughs> stuff is a lot cheaper than ebay yeah then you're always running around trying to find a cash point aren't you yeah, <laughs> that's it. But yeah but- i mean i think game entering the the retro market i don't know is it a good thing or is it going to kind of tread on the toes of these small I, I think it's like these you know tesco saying they want to stock vinyl mm-hmm. it's like this kind of they see that there's something that's happening there but they'll probably bankrupt everyone else if they do it you yeah. know um because they're such a big a big company yeah, which you know might be a shame for the small guys, but on the plus side, it might also mean that the days of paying like you know two hundred quid for an NES game might kind of go a bit. You know, I, I don't know. I don't think the value of stuff's going to go down. I think it's just going <laughs> to keep going up. Uh, yeah. In, invest the, now. The, the, the new antiques. Yeah. <laughs> now you mentioned before. You know, we, we talked about um, the Amiga, which obviously. If you know, we've got YouTube channels that you know mainly Amiga focus, and the Amiga was obviously a massive platform here in England, yep. um, in Europe. So, uh, there is some good news on the Amiga scene over the last couple of weeks, though. That WHD load is now free. Oh my god, this, this software is like if they'd had this back in the day, <laughs> people would not have left Amiga. You can install all your games on the hard drive, yeah, no loading times. It's very nice. Well, that's what it is essentially, isn't it? It's you know, because a lot of Amiga games they were floppy disk only. And you couldn't put them on a hard disk, and it got to the stage where... Do you remember, like, Monkey Island 2? Yeah. That was on, like, 12 discs or something? Yeah, yeah, I think uh, Rise of the Robots was around 14. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So it wasn't worth the plastic it was printed on either. But yeah, with WHD Load, rather than having all the floppy disks, you can basically install Amiga games onto a hard disk or a compact flashcard that weren't originally designed to be hard disk installable. And before, I think, you know, there was... It wasn't much, though, was it, the license fee? No, it was was very small, but the... uh... The kind of the, the main thing about WHD load as well is that it plays games from other Amiga systems. So you can have an Amiga twelve hundred, which is AGA and uh advanced graphics architecture, and it will play the earlier games and the later ones without any compatibility issues, which 
always plagues. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the thing. You remember back then you'd have like uh, degraded discs and all that reload kick and that kind of thing, yeah. wouldn't you? To you know, cause you would whenever a new Mega came out with a new version of the the chipset. A lot of the old games would just fail, wouldn't they? Yeah. But yeah. do the load, you can actually you know downgrade your Amiga to be like an Amiga five hundred or whatever. So. It was a nice, nice gift to the community. They give it away for free. Oh, though. definitely, yeah. I think they should include that with the OS at the beginning. <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So uh, we'll obviously put, um, we'll have show notes for the podcast. We'll put all the links if you want to download it and find out a bit more about WHD Load. Um, but also, I mentioned the Amiga, but um, I did recently defect to the dark side. I know. I, uh, <laughs> I wanted to check it out the window when you handed it to me. <laughs> I bought an Atari ST uh, yeah. recently. Well, it was actually what got me interested in the ST. I mean. It's always kind of been the, you know, the 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 other side, I guess, hasn't it? You know. Yeah, the, it was it was the main rival to Amiga uh, back then. The Atari ST is interesting though, because I we we were at um, Retro Revival the winter warmer, weren't we? Yeah, yeah. In Wolverhampton, and Ravi was playing on an Amiga twelve hundred, and there's Atari ST set up next. Oh to no, it. they had a Falcon as well. They did, which yeah. Which was yeah. the uh, really high end ST. Wasn't that was it? the last one, wasn't yeah. it? The O thirty. Um, but even you know, you look at those; they go for about six hundred quid on eBay. Oh yeah, to buy a Falcon. <laughs> but um, yeah, I bought myself an Atari STE, which okay. is um, it's kind of like the AGA Amigas. It's got you know more colours and the chipsets enhanced a bit. Um, but yeah, I was playing with the ST at this um, retro revival show, and graphically, coming from someone who you know grew up with the Amiga, the games look the same. The big difference you notice is the sound. Yeah, the music's. Yeah. Awful. <laughs> Awful, you know. Well, I think the, the ST, it's got an off-the-shelf um, sound chip. Yeah. And I think it was actually the same one used in the Spectrum. I, fi- like that. I actually, I think the Spectrum sound was a bit nicer. I, yeah, the Spectrum had a very different sound chip, I think. I nearly bought an ST about a year ago, you might remember. We were at, um, yeah, another... yeah, we were going to take the plunge. Yeah, another gaming that. show, weren't we? Yeah. Um, and I picked it up, had the money and all that, but then I think I was chatting to someone about how you get games onto it. Because it had, you know, obviously we mentioned before the Amiga's got WHD. Yeah, we just thought, you know, you could stick a compact flash drive in there yeah. and it would work fine. It was a bit more complex than that, unfortunately. However, um, in the last six months or so, uh, you know the GoTech drives? Yeah. So if you don't know what a GoTech is, it's basically a floppy disk emulator. A USB one, so you can yeah. just stick a USB in. And... But it's pin compatible with an old floppy drive, isn't it? Yeah. So you take your old floppy out, put the data and the power cable into the GoTech, Download a load of disk images onto a USB stick, put it in the GoTech, and then, you know, as far as the machine's concerned, it thinks it's playing the floppy disks. Mm. And they have a little track selector on the front, and you can load games into the, um, like, virtual slots. Uh, however, the, um, the GoTech, it's been, uh, you know, the HXC firmware? Yeah, I've heard of this. This is, uh, it's kind of disk reading firmware. Yeah, well, that so. was another kind of floppy emulator, but I think it was a bit more expensive. Uh, however, they've recently got the that firmware to run on the GoTech. Okay. And there is a version of that firmware that runs on the Atari ST. Ah. So now you can use a GoTech with an ST. Good timing for getting that done. Yeah, well, I did. <laughs> I, I bought one, actually, yeah. So I've now got, you know, all of my Atari ST games on a USB stick, 16-gig USB stick in there. Nice. All the games. But also, I've been looking around for expansions for the Atari ST, and there is something here. It's called the... Uh, the Cosmos EX expansion. Now, I'll put a, a little picture of this and a link to the Facebook post that I found it, but I don't know if you got the link open, Ravi, but you look yeah. at this thing here. Yeah, I'm just about to open it now. Well, it goes in uh, basically you know, the same place that a GoTech would go in the floppy disk side panel on the Atari ST. And then it gives you, if you look here, we've got um, there's Ethernet on there, a couple of USB ports. Um, it also emulates floppy disks. There's an SD card reader in there as well. And also you can put in a... Uh, 
basically, you know, this guy here has got a six gigabyte hard disk in it on an SD card. That's that's crazy because that's like, if if you were to do this with Amiga mm-hmm. individual cards, you would be getting into the hundreds of pounds with the converters. Even yeah, you've got Ethernet and there you've got USB, and that that sells for eighty quid. Wow, wow. So uh... I might get an SD. <laughs> <laughs> Take the plunge, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I'll put I'll put a link to uh, you know the website where you can buy this from. But it's just a guy who makes these. But I, I think that expansion is really cool and definitely on my uh, my shopping list yeah. this year. I think uh, there has actually been some really interesting hardware developments in the Amiga world as well, though. Have you heard about the Vampire Two? I have heard about the Vampire Two, and it's blown my mind. Tell um, us about it then, if people might not be familiar with um, what it is. The Vampire Two is a FPGA, which is a fully programmable gate array. Gate array, I think, array, I think that's, the one. that's the one. Uh, which is basically a hardware board that you can tell to pretend to be like hardware, but it works better than a software emulator um, because it's in hardware. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is. One that you can just basically stick on top of your 600 O2O. 68K, I think. 68K. And it makes it, I think it was around 10 times or 20 times faster. Yeah, they're getting like 80 megahertz or something like speed. (laughs) absolutely flying. I've not seen a machine fly like that before, uh, an Amiga. Oh, this is, yeah, the Amiga 600 as well, which is bottom of the range Amiga, isn't it? The small, you know, the one that's really had a bit of a bad rep, to be fair. It was, you know, I interviewed David Pleasance from Commodore last year. I've got an interview on YouTube. And even he admitted that the Amiga 600 was a total and utter flop and a disaster. Yeah, they even used cheap capacitors in it and stuff. It wasn't that good. But this this card really is really makes it go fast. It makes it the most powerful Amiga, essentially, doesn't it? The (laughs) most powerful Amiga ever. You know, people are playing like... Quake on 600. <laughs> well, playing an MP3 and everything, yeah. yeah. But I was reading as well, there's, um, cost the, obviously this is a, a programmable chip, so like you mentioned, you know, you can basically, you just flash the chip with whatever firmware you want on there or what a kind mm. of emulated CPU. But they even reckon they can bring like the AGA chipset to the Amiga 600. Yeah, yeah, I saw about that as well. That's crazy. That's absolutely mad. I think it's because you can basically add in additional things. Mm-hmm. So, you know, things that didn't exist in the architecture you can just program them in and it will address your machine. It's really insane. But, I mean, I think there, there is talk of them making one for the Amiga 1200, which obviously seems like the logical platform Fro- to do Throw your PowerPC cards in the bin, guys. <laughs> this is though, like... You know, the Amiga scene did kind of go down the PowerPC route, and, you know, they still do continue with that. I mean, you and I both run MorphOS, and, you know, it's cool and all that, but I, I think, you know, this... Well, if this is compatible, they could put it on an Atari... Mm-hmm. They could put it on an Acorn. Mm-hmm. You know, they could maybe use it on many old machines because another crazy thing that I saw, which was a Sonic Power PC cards. Recently, there's a, another really good um, podcast, which is uh, called Amicast. Yeah. And uh, that's amigapodcast.com, English and Polish one. And they've just been talking to a guy. He's He's made the PowerPC Sonic cards, which were made for the Mac years ago, work yeah. with the 4000 now. I did read about that. And he's that, actually yeah. wrote a driver for it. So now they're suddenly going to become a, <laughs> a, a new powerful item as well. Well, they were going on like eBay for like five quid or something, weren't they? they were yeah, yeah, yeah. All, I think so. there was some £13 last year. Or yeah. But great. PowerPC in accelerators for the classic Amigas, are they what, like £2,000 I've seen them go for on uh, eBay and oh, stuff? Oh, God, yeah. It gets crazy. But what? I think this is good because it can be used on multiple machines, maybe. You know, like uh, we had a thing called the Minimig, which was a, a programmable board 
but um, you could also put an Atari core in there. Mm-hmm. You could, you know, have any kind of machine you wanted. See, to me, you know, as someone, I, I think what excites me most about this as well, I mean, I've actually bought one of the Vampire 2s. I ordered it the other day off nice. Kipper. Yeah, so should be coming in the next few weeks. I'll do a YouTube video on it when I get it. Uh, I've got to come round and play it. <laughs> yeah, my Amiga 4000 might get put away in my 600 back yeah. set up again. But I think for me, it's the fact that, you know, I'm not a big emulation guy, but I think because you're using the original hardware, yeah, it doesn't feel like emulation. It just feels like you've got a you know beefy accelerator card in there, doesn't it? Yeah, and it's also it's also good to have it in that original case and just running that absolute crazy speed. What what's your view on emulation? Do you emulate machines at all? The only kind of machines that I tend to emulate are stuff that's all been around, like you know Mega Drive and stuff. That um, if I got all the carts for it, it'd be an absolute hell. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, <laughs> no, I don't really. I I like having the old hardware and dan you've converted me to using crts as well so yeah well, that, that, that was really exciting i i used lcd screens on my uh old school systems for a while but it was when my, my friend came to visit me uh, it was like a friend i used to go to school with and like we uh he came it was about three or four years ago now he came to stay with me for a couple of days while my girlfriend was away and we're drinking jack daniels and he said oh you know put the amiga on he's like, i can't believe you still got one and we were playing that cannon fodder like we used to when we were a kid yeah. and he goes uh oh, i don't remember the graphics looking this bad and I thought, you know, is it just kind of, you know, rose-tinted glasses? Looking back, you know, you always think it's better than it actually was. But then I thought, yeah, it actually looks really quite blocky, doesn't it? And it, it was quite hard to differentiate, you know, the, the characters from the background and everything. And then I gone back to my folks, and I still have my old uh, Philips CM88332 monitor. Yeah, the classic. little 14-inch CRT. And I thought, oh, I'll bring that back down, set it up. And I, it blew me away when I set it up again. I was like, this is how I remember the games looking. Talking of the updating of games as well, another thing that I think we'll be covering in the podcast is a load of remakes because mm-hmm. they're going on at the moment and uh, a lot of games are getting remakes, like this successful Tomb Raider one recently, which is great, play it. And uh, they've just announced a Final Fantasy VII remake, which everyone's looking forward to. It's going to be split up into episodes. So the original one, I remember it was on... I think four discs on the PlayStation. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was only split up into discs. This will be split up into episodes. So yeah, these people, were CD-ROMs, weren't they? Yeah, yeah so um, people hoping to play it all the way through for the first time. I don't think that's going to happen. And you'll but, have to buy it like four times and uh, you know, each instalment will know that be charged. Oh, for. God, yeah. yeah, yeah that's, that, <laughs> I never thought of that. <laughs> but so what platforms are they bringing it out on then? Is it going to be uh, I modern consoles? Xbox yeah, that's one, all yeah. modern consoles, mm-hmm. and uh, it'll probably arrive for the PC about two years later. <laughs> be... So I remember what, some of them were exclusive PlayStation titles for a bit, weren't they? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think they had this weird exclusivity thing. They used to do it with GTA as well, yeah. where they'd you know release it for a few months. But then that kind of stopped. I think it got shorter and shorter, and then they were like, oh, we're going to release GTA for the Xbox for two months. Yeah. And then... You know, everyone else could have it after two months. <laughs> so that is annoying, isn't it? When yeah. company, I mean, they do it with you know, Call of Duty's obviously a bit kind of passe now. You know, I think the sales for Call of Duty have been a bit lower in the last couple of years. Mm. But even with that, I remember a few years ago when it was at its peak, you'd always get the DLC for the Xbox about six months before the PS3. It'd be like, well, that's it, and it's in, and I think it's always a case of the consoles are first as well because PC development just takes more time because mm-hmm. people have more weird hardware and they've got support you know rather than the standard console setup well, i think now it makes it a bit easier as well that the current consoles are obviously architecturally pcs aren't they you know they run x86 yeah, processors yeah, and yeah. stuff so i think you know it, it, apart from the wii that's on arm well from what i've heard about the wii u it's essentially on death's door anyway isn't it at the moment well that's well that's an interesting thing to talk about actually mm-hmm. because 
Nintendo were changing their strategy, I think. Um, before, they had the strategy of casual gamers mm-hmm. and aiming for that. And they did fantastically with the Wii. And um, now the market's been fully taken by mobile games mm-hmm. and, you know, tablets. And they've actually said that they're going to start doing mobile games now. And they've got this new console, the NX, as well. The NX, yeah. Which yeah, is that's... going to be their next platform. It's very interesting because they're moving from the kind of area of, uh, you know, casual gaming to collecting and, uh, you know, with the Amiibos and you being able to, if you don't know what an Amiibo is, it's a little figure that you could stick on your DS and it, it kind of sounds rubbish initially, but uh, they're actually amazingly popular. And yeah, it's like these kind of side projects and merchandising that they're actually making the money on, not the main consoles. Uh, I don't know about the NX. Uh, have you heard anything about it? I've heard it, a few or? rumors about it, but I heard it's apparently it's going to have a touchscreen. So, okay. but it's not. You know, maybe the controller is going to be a bit like the Wii U one with the touchscreen. Did you see the painted thing that they had? No, what was that? Okay, so there's this design of a of a of a handheld kind of controller, like a PS One style mm-hmm. controller, but all the edges of it, the screen goes all the way up to the edge. Right, okay, and it's displayed on it. On the um, controller? Yeah. Okay, interesting. Yeah, so it's kind of like, you know, floating graphics. It's very weird. You know what, though? I find with Nintendo, they kind of some, sometimes are a bit too gimmicky for their own good. With stuff like that, I mean... It's Virtual cool. Bite. <laughs> Virtual oh, yeah, it's like, if you, you look back, though, like the, the really, the Nintendo consoles that, you know, close to our heart, like the NES and the Super Nintendo, they were just simple games consoles didn't have any gimmicky controllers or anything like that. I mean, I know the Wii was obviously their most successful console, but who bought the Wii? Like, my grandma had one, and yeah. she did bowling on it. Now it's, it's, it's been in the cupboard for, like, seven years, you know what I mean? <laughs> it's not a market that they can... That I, I don't even think that market's there anymore. The motion thing happened for a bit, didn't it? Yeah. And that's kind of over now. And I think, you know, casuals, they play Facebook games and mobile games, don't they? Well, that's the thing. You know, casual gaming, that's your person sitting there tapping on a... Uh, Candy Crush Mm -hmm. and you know your your person on a tablet and by Nintendo saying they refuse to do any mobile games they kind of knock themselves out of that market totally so they've had to do a bit of a U-turn and say actually we are going to do them but we're going to do them the Nintendo way and really (laughs) well but I think the minute you can get stuff like you know Mario and that kind of thing on an iPhone Surely that's got to kill like the size of the 3DS stone dead, you'd think. Well, if you just look now, I've just linked to the uh, touchscreen gamepad and uh, it should be very interesting. A oh, it's on a wide magazine. just done for the NX, yeah. Um, but yeah, the NX, I was reading about the NX the other day though and apparently there's been a lot of rumours about it. Um, someone actually said on Twitter, uh, I can't remember the guy's name, name now, but he's quite a respected games journalist, and he said that he knows that it's not going to be as powerful even as a PS4 or the Xbox One. I don't think it needs to be though. I don't, I don't think they're, they're they're not aiming for that ultra realistic kind of you know top end first person shooter Fallout Four. You know they they they're gonna have Mario Kart and why not just keep know. the Wii U going though or change it somehow? I, don't I, I, in that case, I think it's strange with the Wii U because people didn't know if it was a new console or if it was an actual. Uh, upgrade to the Wii. That's an, the name's fault, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The biggest mistake was calling it Wii something, Wii U. Yeah, yeah. Even my brother, you know, my brother's pretty hardcore into Xbox and PlayStation, but 
when I got one, you know, I, I got a Wii U and he's like, oh, I'm not interested in the motion controls. I was like, no, no, it's not that. He said, oh, I thought it was just like a, a tablet for the Wii or something. Like, so a, I know it's a brand new yeah. console, you know. And if my brother didn't know and he's really into video games, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. what chance has the average person got? That's it. But you know, I've got a Wii U and I've, I think it's a great machine. Yeah, no, I've had a play and it seems really nice. I've recently been playing uh, Yoshi's Woolly World, which is a game for like seven-year-olds, but literally it's one of the hardest video games when you get into it. I, was, uh, I nearly threw my controller through the TV yesterday. I'd, I'd like to see Jonathan Ross uh, pronounce that. <laughs> <laughs> Yoshi's Woolly World. Yeah. Um, but also there's another game I've been playing on the Wii U, um, Project X, uh, Made in the Blackwater, it's called. It's kind of like a Japanese horror game. Okay. But yeah, it actually, well, what you do in this game, though, you... Uh, take pictures of ghosts to see them, and you use the Wii U control pad. You look through it, and it's like the viewfinder on your camera. So it works well in that respect, but there are, you know, there are not really many games that utilise the, the touchpad to its full potential. But No, it sounds like uh, you're kind of uh, Dreamcast fishing. <laughs> you know, you know, <laughs> yeah, like, it is, yeah. It's like... Ghost thing. But yeah, it's kind of, it kind of, you know, what I'd really like to see from Nintendo, I'd like them to go for the, the hardcore gaming market again and just, you know, come out with a system that's a simple machine... Plays good games, get their first party titles on there. It'd be nice to see them just trying to compete again, you know. With... Well, well, interestingly, I'm just reading an article here actually, which says uh, the the 3DS and Wii U outsold the PS4 during Christmas in Japan. Oh, interesting. So maybe they're gaining a pace in Japan, and the 3DS is definitely um, gaining ground because I know a hell of a lot of people that are buying it. It surprises me how popular the 3DS is better. I've got one. You know I tried I mean? it. Yeah. I had not tried one the other day. I tried the 3D on it, and it's really cool, actually. Yeah. <laughs> it's you a bit of a headache after a while. You yeah, know, yeah. quite low, but... Because it tracks your eyes, doesn't it? But uh, you'd think with, like, you know, people... Every kid having, like, you know, if they haven't got a phone, they've got, like, an iPod Touch or something. It does surprise me how popular Nintendo's handhelds are, but... Well, I'm, they're saying here, the new 3DS was 150,000. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Wii U was 101. Okay. The PS Vita was sixty six thousand. That's been a disaster, though, hasn't it? The Vita. And the PS Four was only sixty. Oh, interesting. In Japan, interesting. so, <laughs> so Japan's usually the uh, <laughs> the teller of the future, isn't it? Yeah, so. but I mean, from every, everything you know, the, the NX is probably going to be out. Maybe the estimate like early twenty seventeen, so maybe mm. about a year. So really, the Wii U's only got maybe twelve months left in it. But I think you know, it, it's a good console. It's just it has been Nintendo's biggest flop since the Virtual Boy. Yeah, totally, uh, totally, but. You know, they they had to pull themselves out from kind of after the GameCube. They mm-hmm. had to, they could have flopped then, but they luckily found this casual gaming direction and chose to go in that way. So I think they need to make a strong decision again and go for a complete direction. And look, we're 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 from the uh, what's it called? We're from the European perspective, mm-hmm. and we're now talking about Nintendo again. <laughs> so it's uh... yeah, what we were saying before about the NES. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, speaking as like someone who grew up in England, um, I knew like one guy who had an NES. Uh, all the rich boys had SNESs when we were kids. Yeah, 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 yeah. My friend Martin had a Super Nintendo, um, but I mean, you know, for me, like most of my friends, it was like Commodore sixty fours and then Amigas and stuff yeah, like that. My but... first machine was the uh, twenty eight hundred, and then Atari. Yeah, and then a. Big fat dirty Amstrad. Well, the CPC four six four. That thing was it. I think so. Was oh, it a PC? One green of and black. Oh, and my mum had yeah, Word yeah. Perfect on it, and oh, I play Missile Command on Rampage. <laughs> my auntie had one that used three inch floppy disks. 
freeing. Yeah, they're kind of like they're rigid. They're kind of quite hard. Oh, they sound yeah. Cool. So, but there's actually a guy the other day looking for some, and apparently can't find them anywhere now. Three yeah. inch discs are like really rare, apparently. So uh, I never knew they even existed. <laughs> That's... So if you've got an old, uh, I think it was only really Amstrad and maybe Sinclair used them. Obviously, Sinclair and Amstrad became the same company eventually, but yeah. I don't think they were really that. You know, three inch discs were used all that widespread. But if you've got an old Amstrad in the attic, you know, have a little route around. Those three inch discs might be valuable now. Well, I remember getting a uh, tapes. When I was a kid for the Atari and put them in the tape player to see if they work. <laughs> <laughs> well, interesting. I, I kind of, um, I, I've been to my mum's and cleaning out some of my old stuff from the attic. I found a box of old cassette tapes. Nice. So I've been actually digitizing all the audio and stuff off them. But I found an old cassette tape um, of a game that I made when I was eight years old on the Commodore Plus Four. Excellent. So huh? I haven't got the Plus Four set up at the moment, but I put it in an audio recorder to listen, you know, make sure the, the, I, don't, I hadn't taped over it or anything, yeah. but I got the old, you know, oh. so obviously there's some data on there, so might be quite interesting. Data had a, on tape. A blockbuster <laughs> game in the making. The hidden one. And uh, talking of blockbuster games, actually, um, we have a friend called Steve, and he's doing a, a project called Eternal Psygnosis. That's amazing, isn't it? Yeah, and uh, what's basically happened is... His friend, Mike, was the original managing director of Cygnosis, found all these old discs, 800 of them, and gave them along to Steve. He was kind of looking through them, archiving them, and he's found a Star Wars game that yeah. was meant to be released by Cygnosis. It's, it's an Amiga game. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, I think it was in 94, so we can put some links on that, and we might have them on a later show as well. Yeah, well, I've been, you know, obviously we will hopefully have Steve on in the next few weeks but he released some just before Christmas at like the Beast Pack yeah. I remember that and I downloaded and that's got like you know the Shadow of the Beast graphics and you can load the IFF files up into D-Paint and oh it, I haven't downloaded it yeah yet. you've got I to get downloaded to see that. yeah I think he, he'd done like about there's about seven discs that he'd done at first and he kind of released them as a little zip file mm. um, but yeah it's fascinating you know because obviously Psygnosis who are one of the, the biggest publishing houses back in the oh, early 90s oh, they were massive even with the Playstation when they first yeah. came on with Destruction Derby and games like that but it's you know just charting the history of such an iconic company and like having an insight into how those classic games were made it's uh yeah you know this stuff's going to get lost it, exactly uh, you, yeah. you know you need to preserve it for history exactly now speak i mentioned before about the atari st i was reading something quite interesting the other day that um obviously you know speaking as a uh, guys who Ran Amigas back in the day. Obviously, the ST's operating system was always a bit of a uh, a joke. Toss wasn't it called? That's <laughs> yeah, really the, the worst operating name. system. Yeah, yeah. Toss. Uh, yeah, I remember it. I think like it, some Amiga magazine. I think it was Amiga Power or something. Used to always call like Atari ST users Tossers, you know, with a capitalized yeah. TOS. Uh, but I was reading something the other day that apparently it nearly ran um, a proper Unix operating system. Okay. Yeah, apparently this was made for it, but um, at the last minute, you know, obviously uh, Jack Trammell ran Atari and he was a notorious skinflint, wasn't he? Very tight with his money and he didn't want to pay for it in the end. So mm. they basically, you know, used the the operating system in the end. But it could have been a proper hardcore hacker's machine with that. Yeah, you know yeah. I mean? so they could have, you know, with the uh, Falcon, they could have even yeah. gone further and, you know, yeah, it could have got been like, modern graphics cards in there. and You know, you, you use like Unix on servers and all that. So it could yeah. have definitely, it could have been used in a professional environment rather than what the ST actually was. So... Well, uh, talking of strange OSs on things, uh, going back to Nintendo, we've noticed that they've just... Well, some guys put a video. I don't know how... You know what the article headlines are like. But, um, he's run Windows 95 on a 3DS. <laughs> it's is in crazy. dual screen as well. But it only shows the boot screen on the actual YouTube video. So we don't know how far he's got, but people are 
uh, hooting about this on the internet. It's um, I, I don't really know what what architecture the. 3DS runs on to be oh, honest. Is it the standard PC? Or, or is it? Yeah. That's, that's a big job then if he's ported it as well. <laughs> Could have maybe put his efforts into something a little bit more worthwhile, but you know. Yeah. yeah there's, there's, there's some strange, strange things. Like uh, I saw people were uh, porting to scopes, oscilloscopes, mm-hmm. Doom. Yeah, they do say that everything's got a port of Doom. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, you'll be running it on your toaster in a couple of years, no doubt. But yeah, we'll obviously uh, we'll pop uh, the link to the video in the uh, in the audio podcast show notes if you want to check that out. And we've also got um, quite a fascinating interview coming up as well uh, with Alistair Brimble. Yes, Alistair Brimble, the guy from Team Seventeen, you may remember. Um, but Roller yeah, coaster tycoon driver. He's know. a lovely guy, Alistair. We actually met him last year in Amsterdam, didn't we? At the uh, the Amiga's thirtieth yeah, anniversary there. party. Yeah, so uh, he was there in his, I remember his, his bright blue suit. Yeah, and we, uh, I think we spent some time at the airport as well. <laughs> we did, yeah, yeah. yeah we had a Went good... for a coffee and a bit of pasta with him, didn't we? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember that, yeah, lovely guy. And uh, we've actually got a fascinating 15 or 20 minute interview coming up with Alistair Brimble. Yeah, and um, if you're also looking for other podcasts, there's a really good new one called Amigos Podcast, which is about everything Amiga. And this is from the US perspective, which is very interesting because in the US they didn't have any Amigas, so mm-hmm. it's completely the opposite to the whole retro scene style. And Remotely Interested Podcast, which is a guy who who does Amiga content, but he also does lots of stuff about technology. So he's recent ones about a guy who's going around scanning buildings and then recreating it in 3D with lasers. So, wow. you know, there's some really cool <laughs> Anything stuff involving lasers that. is cool, though, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. <laughs> and did you have one more podcast to mention? Uh, yeah, and that's the Amicast. Um, all these will be provided in the notes, but Amicast is an English and Polish Amiga cast. Uh, you've been checking out the Retro Hour. You can get the show every week on iTunes and on SoundCloud and, of course, from the website, theretrohour.com. And we'll leave you now with this fascinating interview with Alistair Brimble, and we'll catch you next week. Bye. So, Alistair, we'll start by asking, how did you first get involved in making video game music? Well, I, I guess my, my, my dad was fairly musical. I, I was really into computers and pretty amazed by some of the music they were uh, creating at the time. I think there was a game called Glider Rider that David Whitaker did a soundtrack um, that really inspired me and of course like everybody I moved on to the Amiga managed to get some software to allow me to compose my own tunes and I sent one of them off to a software company called Team uh, 17-bit software it's actually a public domain company I guess there's quite a few people listening who might not even know what the you know, public domain software company is I guess it's like today you might show something on YouTube um, you might show your music or your graphics on YouTube well it's kind of the same thing but they put it on a disc and they distributed it for the price of the disc and uh, yeah so I sent something off to them and they loved what I did I did a I think I did a uh, Jean-Michel Jarre rendezvous remix oh nice anyway i sent this tune off um you know not thinking anything would come of it and i'm kind of amazed to to get a reply back saying they they like what i did and i think um 17 bit they later turned into team 17 mm-hmm. and uh, of course they did alien breed and project s and i i was um chosen to do those games and sort of went on from there uh, before the amiga were you involved in the commodore 64 music scene as well weren't you um actually strangely after the amiga okay so um, I did some Amiga projects for Codemasters software. I think it was um, a, a game called Nitro Boost Challenge. And then um, a 
a football game which came out a couple of years later called Italia 1990. And um, after that, then they they asked me to do some music for um, the Spectrum and the Commodore 64 because they were at the end of their life. So it was kind of a backward step, but it was really nice to be able to do some of the stuff that my sort of childhood heroes would be doing, like Rob Hubbard and Dave Whitaker on those 8-bit machines. What did you think of the SID chip? SID chip's awesome. It still is today. I, I've just done a project with it, actually, which is um, called SIDology 2. Remixes of Jean-Michel Jarre done with the SID chip. Oh, wow. Um, and I've used something like four or five SIDs at once. Um, okay. It's a SID emulator made by Mike Clark. Um, that runs on Cubase, and it, it sounds, it's 100% realistic. So, yeah, I've been having fun with that. But, yeah, you've just got so much expression with the SID chip that you don't get later on on the Amiga. You kind of have to push it quite hard to get any expression from a sample. But, yeah, you had it all with uh, with the 64. You just you couldn't have the samples. It, it was just a uh, very rich, flowing sound. What software did you use to make music on the 64 then? Was it all just like machine code or basic, or was it like trackers for it? I had some um, uh, software where I could type the notes in one at a time, um, and that was given to me by somebody, another composer called Wally Beban. Later on, a friend called Michael Delaney, um, who's really good at writing sound drivers, made me a proper tracker program that would run on, on an Amiga. Yeah, then I could uh, plug it into the, um, I think you managed to get onto a, a Commodore 64 disc and get it into the 64 like that. On a five and a quarter inch floppy, was it? <laughs> yeah, it was, yeah. <laughs> old school. One of the old big ones. Going on to the Amiga, what was your setup then that you used to use originally? Uh, originally, uh, the thing, good thing about the Amiga was you could just do it with an Amiga. You didn't need anything else. So um, I had an Amiga and I uh, had Aegis Sonics, um, which was a nice software package where you could do samples and almost Commodore 64-like um, you know, synth leads and stuff on it. And then later on, I moved, well, not, not much later on, a few months later, I probably moved to Soundtracker, like a lot of people. And uh, then you got all that amazing sample manipulation you do real time. So, Alistair, uh, um, I knew you were doing lots of stuff later on after the Amiga. Did you use the Amiga at all to kind of work with them? Or any Amiga software for the PlayStation tunes? Or? For PlayStation, I think I, I was on Fast Tracker on the PC. But um, before that, I did quite a bit of music for the Super Nintendo. Um, there's uh-huh. a game called Lawnmower Lawn Man. That, that did yeah, I remember that. That's got a really good soundtrack, actually. Yeah, Lawnmower thanks. Man. And um, I used David Whitaker's sound driver on that, but you had to type the notes in one at a time to that in, a, in an assembler. So what I did is I used a program on the Amiga called Delta Music, which is another tracker type thing. But it's really good in that all the channels are separate. You know, on a tracker, they're all they're linked together yep. for channels so you can't um, change them independently really i remember yeah. a thing around the time um everybody kind of big musicians in the amiga scene used to have their own sound format so i remember there was a special david whittaker sound format did you have an alistair brimble one <laughs> no i didn't i just i used the um the well actually sort of um yeah i started using a program called Samwon. Um, which was by a guy called Brian Posma. Um, okay. He was brilliant at writing tracker sort of programs. And that allowed me to do Alien Breed. Actually, by the way, I couldn't have done Alien Breed on a tracker because it would have taken too much memory because each of those patterns takes um, you know several K of memory. Yeah. You probably know better than me. How, it's probably one K a um, pattern or something mm-hmm. like that. 
but on on sound one i could have the four channels independent so i could like um construct it like a jigsaw um but yeah he he actually found out that i used his um sound one on alien breed so uh, i said to him well i really probably should have paid you a little bit for that so i paid him 100 pounds in return he actually wrote me salmon 2.0 um which had loads of extra features in that only i could use so essentially um, you just paid for a private upgrade <laughs> 100 quid not bad is it yeah yeah, oh, yeah um so yeah um i was quite pleased with that and you could do um quite interesting stuff like you could set a vibrato going and it would continue going through all the other instruments um, that you played after it. That, that's what David Whitaker used to do on the Commodore 64, especially on his bass lines, and mm. the vibrato used to continue. And I just couldn't do that on a normal tracker because it would kind of keep resetting. So, would, yeah. would that be the kind of to play free notes at the same time? I remember there was a trick that David Whitaker did, or there was some timing trick where you could play free notes at the same time. I think it was on the Spectrum. Yeah, um, on the Spectrum Beeper, he came up with something where you could mix channels together. And, uh, and I think later on, Tim Follin did something. Uh, he, he did like five or six channels at once. <laughs> <laughs> well, you mentioned before about, you know, fitting music into memory. Did you ever find any limitations? Would like a software publisher say you've got like a certain amount of space on the disc for the music? So, yeah, on the, on the Spectrum and stuff, you like had 3K of memory. Um, so, yeah, you... You're, the biggest problem wasn't the sounds, it was the note data itself. And you had to really compress that down. So instead of like on a tracking, you've got like 64 length patterns, you had 16 or 8 length patterns, and you had to sequence them you know, very, very efficiently um, to get the most out of it. And then I guess when you get to the Amiga, you'd have 40 or 50K of memory to play with. I remember when I did the, the full Alien Breed tune, it came out at 80k and it was too big for the game. So I had to cut that down. <laughs> was that heartbreaking? Was it having to like cut your projects down then? It was, but the, the one everybody heard, they seemed to really like. So because what I did is I took away the, the samples and I replaced them with single cycle waveforms, just tiny waveforms, like, um, like a vocal waveform and added some vibrato. And it seemed to to work in context with the tune, so yeah, it, it didn't um, didn't end up too badly that one. But you also worked on the Mortal Kombat series as well, which obviously was massive. How did you get involved with that? Yeah, Mortal Kombat. Um, that was uh, Probe Software. But yeah, I, I think they just phoned me up or got in contact via Martin Brown at Team Seventeen, perhaps, and um, got me over to see the to see the arcade machine. Now the problem I had was, um, yeah, the title tune was easy enough because I could I could get that into four channels. But in game they wanted um, three channels for sound effects, and that only left me one channel for the music. Wow! So I had to um, use a little trick that Jerome Tell from Maniacs of, no of Noise had used a few years before on the Commodore 64 and get like a kick and a snare and a bass all out of one channel um, and a little bit of melody as well I seem to remember. <laughs> <laughs> so you could have the uh, toasty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was very sound effect heavy game yeah, wasn't yeah. it as well, yeah. It was, yeah. <laughs> when you first saw the arcade of Mortal Kombat did you, did you have any idea how big it was going to be or did it make an impression on you at all? Yeah, um, yeah, it was. A, I mean, it was a totally different game to anything I'd seen. I hadn't really seen much, and especially all the vocals. That's what really stood out. I think all those special like kill moves and stuff you can do. Yeah, well, I mean, it kind of was a game that brought in the the age rating for video games, wasn't it? It was. Yeah, although I remember that all those blood and guts. And, <laughs> absolutely brilliant. <laughs> Looks primitive today, but yeah, it was shocking stuff back then. 
Also, how did you feel about Driver when you first did that? Because I listened to your soundtrack and it's absolutely fabulous. It's like 1970s, you know, kind of cop movie. Um, <clears throat> did you feel it would be as successful when you first started? Um, no, I had no clue. Um, I realised who Reflections were um, like halfway through the project. Like, oh yeah, shit, they did all that stuff on the Amiga as well. <laughs> and um, yeah, so I, I, I did that. I did the... Um, the music in on a PC with Fast Tracker in eight channels, but when it got into the game, a lot of people don't realise it's not playing properly. Okay. Um, so it's missing notes all over the place. There was some timing issue, so you're kind of hearing half the music. Or on the on the second version, Driver Two, it plays correctly. That's um, really odd because lots of people say that you know the Driver soundtrack is one of the best on the PlayStation <laughs> One. So uh, the fact that it's not fully there is quite interesting. It is, yeah. Um, also, I think I'm not sure, but I think um, quite a few people have confused the the PlayStation one with the PC one, which had different music. Yeah. But I, I didn't actually do the PC stuff. They were kind of full CD tracks. I imagine a lot of the time you wrote music for a game, obviously before the game was finished. Was there any occasions where you did a soundtrack and then the game was disappointing after? Uh... I think you tend to know when the game's going to be good just by who's making them. Um, so, like, if you're doing a Reflections game, you know it's going to be good. Yeah, I mean, these days that's more common. It's, I'll do, you know, a really big, um, expensive-sounding soundtrack, and then the game's absolutely rubbish on, you know, iPad. It's, like, for three-year-olds or something like that. And <laughs> yeah, that can be a bit um, disappointing. But um, in the Amiga days, I think generally the games were, were, were pretty good, yeah. What do you say is your... Uh... Favourite and least favourite formats that you've worked on? It's hard to compare, really, isn't it? Because they all had something special. But um, I think that the biggest jump forwards was the Super Nintendo at the time. I could suddenly, you could have like eight channels of, um, of, of music, well, probably six music and two sound effects, and you could do so much more with it. And it, it even had, it, had its own sound chip just for processing um, sounds. So you could like do DSP effects and stuff like that. Nice. So Super Nintendo probably stood out the most. Now, recently you brought an album called the uh, the Amiga Works. Uh, yeah, Amiga Works. Um, so I've been asked over the years to to make remixes of my tunes, and um, actually a guy called uh, Chris Yulesbeck that everyone will know did a project first uh, called Turrican Anthology, and I saw how well he'd done on that um, remaking his Turrican tunes. Um, and they, you know, he'd got a lot of backers. So I thought, well, let's uh, let's copy it, basically. <laughs> he even released that on vinyl, didn't he? Was yeah. it vinyl? Yeah. Wow, okay. Yeah, so I thought, I, I, I talked to Chris, and I just asked him how easy it was to do, and sort of explained how to use Kickstarter and stuff. And I just, I put mine up there, not expecting too much, and, um, yeah, pe pe people seem to want it. You know, Kickstarter's great. If people don't want it, they tell you by not by yeah. not um, pledging and then you don't have to do the project so um yeah so that was it and um yeah i remade all my tracks from the ground up I tried to um keep the essence of the originals so sometimes sometimes i do something that's like too good I'd, I'd have to go back to the amiga and hear how how everything was exactly on the beat and try and copy that rather than put any swing or anything on the tracks and and try and make the sounds as simple as the amiga ones but then kind of make it modern and, and easy to listen to on uh, on your hi-fi speakers <laughs> so they weren't too polished um they yeah sometimes they were they, they were polished 
Um, but sometimes I, I I added too many new sounds, I think, and then you distract from or detract from what the original was. And you've got to remember that it's people's memories you're playing with. So you've got to they've got to remember the original and realise it's the original as well as it sounding good. And there's a documentary being made about you. Oh yeah, um, this is <laughs> uh, Paul, I think it's Paul Bridger. Um, yes. Um, one of my he's kind of the original. Um, um, guy that bought my first um, CD, which was Sounds Digital, which was advertised in the box for um, a Project X. And, um, yeah, he's always bought all my stuff ever since. And then he got the, um, on Kickstarter, he got the executive um, producer credit on the Amiga Works. And, um, yeah, so he's decided to to make this documentary. I don't know what's in it at all. I haven't seen anything of it yet, so... That must be quite an honour, though, having a documentary made about you. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Brilliant. Um, so, yeah, I'm, lo- I'm looking forward to seeing you. <laughs> so what projects are you currently working on then, Alistair? I've got a, a big indie project coming up soon with an Australian developer. Um, it's like a big adventure game. Also, um, I'm working on a game... I'm not sure if I can say... Do you remember I did a game called uh, Train Fever recently? Well, there might be something along those lines. Yeah, if you have a look at that, uh, Train Fever online, it's done really well. So it's, there's, there's more to come of that sort of thing. And other than that, it's, it's a few little iPad projects. And we're doing a lot of, um, me and my partner, Anthony Putson, we're doing a lot of virtual reality games at the moment. Oh, wow. Um, they're not really games. Um, stuff like um, presentations for BP, um, where they're putting their headset on, an Oculus Rift headset, we're having to do the a 3D soundtrack for it. Um, they, they'll be used as like a presentation in a big hall. Virtual reality is very exciting this time around, though, isn't it? I think the technology is finally there. Yes, I think. Um, vir- in fact, I don't know if you saw it, but I saw the first version of virtual reality on the Amiga, the Trocadero yeah. in London, and they had three Amigas running it. Oh, the virtuality one. Yeah, that yeah. Was it. Amiga 3000s, weren't they? <laughs> That's right. It was one for each dimension. Um, and uh, yeah, it was absolutely brilliant. And I thought, wow, this is the way forward. And then nothing happened. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, yeah. yeah um, I remember there I, was kind of seizure warnings as well at some <laughs> yeah, point. There was very a low weird... frame rate, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it was, yeah. But it was still amazing the way you could look around you, even behind you and stuff like that. And I've thought ever since that it would be the next big thing. And now finally it looks like it will be. I just want to say um, if you want to check out Alistair's website it's orchestralmedia.co.uk and that's where you'll find information about kind of Train Fever and all his recent projects Mm -hmm. and then just search the Amiga Works if you're looking for his new remade album and we'll look forward to the documentary as well yep I'm looking forward to that (laughs) excellent thank you very much Alistair thanks a lot then